Hey everybody, welcome into episode number 106 of Tone the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn. It's weekly pitching talk with the five-time World Series champ, the Cy Young Award winner, David Cohn, the research ace, James Smythe, myself, Justin Shackle, our terrific producer, Dan Work, with us as well. You know what's scary, guys? So yesterday, I am, I'm, I'm looking down at the Yankee schedule, kind of just observing how I can navigate my personal schedule. And we realize there's two and a half weeks left in the regular season. That's it. And it's going to fly by. We know this. What is what is the one race here that you guys are locked in on as we approach the finish line? Well, it, it's hard not to look away from from the uh, what's going on in Texas, right? When you, when you think about the American League West, you know, that that's a, that's an obvious uh, an obvious choice there. Although the National League wildcard, too, is pretty interesting if you're, you're going to Round it out into a bigger race of the wild card as well, but it's it's Houston and Texas going at it, and uh, obviously Seattle trying to hang on and stay in it. Right, you have the two pronged. You have the AL West race, and then there's the the runner up scrum for the wild card. So there's kind of going to be two avenues there, and it's higher caliber teams. The NL wild card race. I hope they all stay in it, and it should be really fun. But at the same time. When it's you know teams that are going to win 83, 84, 85 games, it kind of has a little bit uh, less juice to me. However, the extra chaos of having all these teams in it gives it a little boost. But I think my favorite one down the stretch will be the AL West with a sidecar of the uh, of the wild card race in the AL. Yeah, the NL wild card race is like a war of attrition, and the end goal is like mediocrity, right? Like once once it ends, like then the postseason begins, and I feel like we're all just gonna write off whatever team sneaks in for that that third and final wild card spot. The 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 AL West. I mean, and again, I, I see James's expression on the YouTube stream here. Like, yeah, you're right. We never know. That's you the essence know. of the postseason. But uh, yeah, the AL West uh, obviously is not lacking any juice, especially for the last week. Over time now, and, and we're getting ready for a big Rays Orioles series. Like, part of me is like, hey, don't overthink this. Those two teams have been the class of the American League this entire season. I'm interested to see, obviously, how this weekend works and how the last couple of weeks goes for for both teams. We uh, we're going to touch in on one team in that AL West race. We're going to take a look at the Cy Young races as well. Try and see if there's still a lot to be learned. Or if they're wrapped up, we're also going to touch on the Mets hiring David Stearns, and we'll touch in on the Yankees a little bit later on as well. We're not going to have Yankees chat this week. We're going to have New York baseball chat this week here on Toe in the Slab. But let's begin like we do each week with the opener. David starts us off with the topic on his mind. David, what do you have for us this week? Well, I you know I, I can't help but have a soft spot in my heart having spent, you know, Oh, really? Actually, parts of six years in the minor leagues. I was a kid who signed out of high school professionally back in 1981. So anybody who spent a long time in the minor leagues, I've got a soft spot. Bull Durham's my favorite movie of all time for obvious reasons. It, it kind of hit on that, that minor league experience. Uh, so when, when you saw what happened in the Yankee game last night with some some guys that have really persevered, uh, you know, Mashevitz, Bowman, McAllister, and even Ramirez at the end there closing it out. What a heartwarming story for me to see those guys get another chance after all the injuries, all the the, uh, the the adversity that they had to face to get there, to me, it's just, wow, what a wow moment. I thought we captured it on air on the Yes Network very well, showing those guys and the true emotion on their faces. And then you you juxtapose that against the the story of Alex Manoa in Toronto. And if reports are true, I mean, I, you know, I don't want to speculate and get out of line here, but if indeed he failed to report to AAA after the season he's had, 
and is just sitting in his apartment in Toronto. I think he needs to have a maybe a Zoom. Let's get him on a Zoom with Mashevitz and Bowman and McAllister, and let's talk about it. Let's talk about our experiences in baseball because you never take anything for granted in this game. You never give up. That was a great story for those kids to come back last night. All of them had injuries. All of them had a lot of bus rides in the minor leagues. Never take anything for granted, no matter how big you think you are, how much of a star you think you are. It can end in a moment, and you could be fighting for your life in, in, in the minor leagues for years on end, and maybe or maybe not get another chance to get back to the big leagues. The Yankee Red Sox series has a little less excitement this year, understandably, considering where they are in the standings. But seeing the drama of you know these guys coming up out of nowhere from Scranton and, and nailing down a tight win at Fenway Park, was really great to see. And, and I'll wave the pom-poms. You mentioned it, Coney, how we captured it. It was a blast. And just the whole uh, the whole crew on Yes and uh, director Dan Bard, producer Troy Benjamin, just really nailed it and just bringing the viewer right there with them. And the, to see the emotion and the, and the fire that these guys had was really great to see. Yeah, if a lot of national baseball fans may be listening or watching this and they're saying, oh, here we go. Yeah, three three Yankee guys talking about a Yankee Red Sox, a meaningless series in Boston in, in middle of September for the fight for fourth place. But I'll tell you what, uh, that was a doubleheader on Tuesday. Big reason why we're releasing this episode a day late. Mind you that. Um, but those three coming into the game in game two, seeing their expressions after getting big outs again, McCall and they're not, they're not kids here. Like this is not part of the youth movement for the Yankees. McAllister's 35 Bowman's in his thirties. McAllister came back his first appearance since 2018. Bowman, his first appearance since 2019. Misevich has been bouncing around. They all, all been riding the buses. Like Coney said, that made a long double header worth it right there because that's the essence of, of why so many people love the game. Stories like that. Players persevering, players sticking with it, loving the game when it's not loving you back. And then then like you said, you have the reports with Alec Manoa. I hope they're not true. I hope that, you know we can we can get Alex spin on this uh moving forward in the future, but uh a, a lesson learned for everybody, you know, in terms of persevering persistence you take a look at those three relievers for the Yankees on Tuesday in the doubleheader game against Boston I think it's a it's a great lesson a great story they're shining examples of of perseverance here guys I want to I want to tee up with uh, a topic that I guess we could just label as hey the state of pitching culture around the game um, this is our our first time getting together, kind of reflecting on the comments that we heard from from Mariners pitcher George Kirby last week. You've likely heard them by now. I think we're a little late to the party, but hey, um, I want to dive deeper than the, just the the surface comments. He made the comments after a loss last week to Tampa Bay, received a lot of heat from a lot of people around the game, especially former players. Uh, the quote here, let me bring it up here. He said, "I I wish I was not out there for." the seventh, to be honest, because I was at 90 pitches. Kirby's were referring to the seventh inning. I didn't think I needed to go anymore. So people were, were questioning Kirby's drive, his his lack of competitiveness, if you want, all those things. And there are lots of people. I, I saw a lot of people on, on Twitter asking for my thoughts, for everyone's thoughts. A lot of people had a problem with Kirby actually saying those words out loud. Probably should have kept them to himself but i'm looking at the bigger picture here regarding present day pitching culture guys because i don't think we can blame george kirby 
for thinking this way. And we've talked about this before in, in past episodes. George Kirby's 25 years old. This is a product of how pitchers his age and maybe even slightly older, how pitchers are trained here. And it's also leaving me a, a bit confused about where pitching is going because we've celebrated both the the workhorse starting pitcher that's kind of a dying breed now that, that are effective even through a third time through opposing batting lineups, uh, the guys who approach 200 innings each year. And we're also celebrating this booming age of state-of-the-art relievers, guys who are, are throwing harder, maximum velocity, spinning the baseball more than ever. So in, in, terms of, in terms of pitching culture here, I wonder why does it have to be one way or the other? Why can't baseball kind of have it both ways? Train pitchers like George Kirby to – stop looking back at the scoreboard to see their pitch count at 90 and sort of shut it down mentally. Don't tell me it doesn't happen because I've had pitchers kind of, you know, hint at that mentality here and, and switch it up, have them train to go the distance, sprint through the finish line and also refine these super relievers. Tell me why it can't be done. Well said, Jack. I mean, across the board there, um, you know, this is why reporters want to get in the clubhouse right after the games immediately. You know, you have sort of that 10 minute window where they keep the clubhouse doors closed because if you get it fresh, you're going to get it. You're going to get honest answers like that. You know, and that's how he really felt at the time. And even though he regretted it and apologized and somebody got to him and maybe he saw how ridiculous he sounded. But with all that being said, it's hard to blame him. You're right, Jack. I mean, that's the conditioning that happens in the minor leagues. And in fact, it's going the other way. You know, I, I had a talk with Gabe Kapler in San Francisco last weekend about modern day pitching and, and and a lot of modern analytics departments really across the board believe that the future of pitching should just be no roles at all defined, just a bunch of three inning pitchers and you just interchange the parts and it allows them to sort of do better matchups across the way. And I think I could kind of see Gabe Kapler's eyes light up because he loved the idea of being able to manage more being able to kind of use his skills more about mat more matchups, more, more managing, you know, and, and pitchers that are more flexible instead of just, you know, uh, the old school model of, of starting pitchers and middle relievers and defined roles. So yeah, where we're going is the opposite direction. And so it's, it's no wonder that you see that kind of comment from, from George Kirby and him, him backtracking and apologizing the next day. Uh, uh, you know, as far as the old school mentality goes and can we get back to that a little bit more and the entertainment value of dominant starting pitchers and putting fannies in the seats, I think this is, you know, we've talked about this on Toying in the Slab a, a lot of times. I know, uh, Jack, you and I have, and James, you and I have, in terms of, uh, you know, where the rubber meets the road as far as uber-efficient analytics and what is real, true entertainment. Sometimes they don't they don't coincide. Sometimes being really efficient, uh, analytically speaking, isn't what the fans are going to pay to see. It's not it's not the most exciting brand of baseball. So that gets us to the shift and uh, to some of the rules changes that we've seen that have had a positive impact. But, you know, with all that being said, it's hard to blame George Kirby, but no two pitch counts are the same. How did you get to 90 pitches? How was your last inning? How do you look? How do you feel? And that's a conversation that should have been had in the dugout with your manager and your pitching coach, not with the media after the game. This is going to be a vociferous defense of George Kirby right out of the gate. You know, he apologized and he walked it back. You know, obviously you don't want a pitcher to say something that you might think is like calling out the manager. So he regretted that. Okay. But just in general, George Kirby is one of the bright young pitchers in baseball. He's, going to make 
30 plus starts this year. He's going to hit about 190 innings before going to the playoffs. This is not a guy who has trouble going deep into the game before. He is fourth in the American League in innings per start, 6.14. He's fourth behind Framber Valdez, Garrett Cole, and Pablo Lopez. He's ahead of his own teammate, Luis Castillo, who is considered a real rock and a, and a workhorse there. And Kirby, I, I think it's a little weird because he – he goes 90, 95, 100 pitches all the time. So I And I saw that in that game at, at Tampa Bay, he threw 31 pitches in the first inning. And I thought maybe he maybe that just took a lot out of him. And then on this particular day when he's at 92 or he's at 94 pitches through six innings, maybe he was just out of gas. Um, or maybe he just had a bad day. I don't know. But it, it was very strange to see those comments coming out from Kirby, who is a durable, take the ball every every fifth day, He's, he's a really durable quality pitcher and it was a little striking to see, but just generally the idea around times through the order, you know, that's not new. The, if you look at the, not to bury you all with numbers, but if you look at the batting average first time through third time through opponents, 247 on the first time against the starter two sixty-seven on the third time. So that's a 20 point jump. OPS goes from 731 on the first time to 784 on the third pass. That's over 50 points higher. The first time a reliever faces, those are they have both lower numbers than against the starter on the first turn. But if you go back 40 years, we also had the same thing. So we have a 20-point jump in batting average from first to third this time. In 1983, 40 years ago, batting averages jumped 18 points. The OPS jumped 50 points as well. So I think what it all comes back to is, you're going to have your Garrett Cole, your Framber Valdez, Justin Verlander. You're going to have your aces. but And I think we're seeing it where managers are and should manage those guys differently than the guys at the back end. You know, if, if, if your number five starter is, is a five and fly guy, but it's a good five, then take it and, and hand the ball to the next guy. You know, and, you know, we always bring this back to the Yankees, but I've seen a lot of criticism around how the Yankees have handled Clark Schmidt, that he needs to go deeper into the games. He has trouble going beyond 75 pitches. But if he only goes five and two thirds, but it's a good five and two thirds with two runs allowed, I'll take that. And so you just have to say, well, not everybody in your five man rotation is going to be the same kind of guy. That's what I'm hung up on, James. Like you, you just mentioned a couple of workhorses, you know, the Garrett Coles, the Framber Valdez is I'm hung up on the entertainment factor. And as a fan, you know, I'm kind of conditioned to, to think that way. Are you telling me that I have to, to change how I perceive all this because David, what you're saying after your talk with Gabe Kapler, where the game is going, it sounds like the Coles, the Valdezes, yeah, there's a select few of them now. They're going to become extinct in the near future. Well, yeah, I, I think it's more of the developmental side. Is, is is you're always going to have, and if you look at San Francisco, they have two starters, and the other guys are the way he's used his pitching staff or sort of that that future model of a bunch of three inning pitchers or you have a starting pitcher go two or three. If he looks good, maybe I'll ride it out for four, but these guys are going to pitch two or three or four innings and then roll them through and do piggyback style starts. Uh, similar to what we saw with uh, maybe, uh, you know, Randy Vasquez and, and Johnny Brito with the Yankees kind of piggybacking uh, three innings each. So uh, you're still going to need that one or two horse horse type pitcher though to take some of the pressure off of, of the rest of the days, if you're going to employ that kind of a strategy where you have interchangeable parts and it's matchup city. So uh, 
Yeah, I, I still think the Garrett Coles of the world are going to be worth their weight in gold. Those are the, the stars are, are, are still few and far between. But if you are a star pitcher, you still want to use your best guys as much as you can and get them as many innings as you can. Is is well, that talent? I'm sorry. Is that is that is that talented kid out there who may be 15 right now? Though is is he going to be able to slip through the cracks with how everyone's being conditioned? Well, it's it's that remains to be seen. As you said before, will he be allowed to in the minor leagues? Right. And a lot of times they won't. I mean, the conditioning errors on the side of caution. The one thing we know from medical data, and then I'll, I'll get to James here because I know you got a thought there is is that the one thing that leads to injuries and things that leads to Tommy John or, or shoulder problems is fatigue. That's the only thing we really know is that fatigue leads to injury. So when does fatigue happen? And it's not the same for two different, two different pitchers. It's not the same in any individual game. You know, as James said, George Kirby had a big first inning, 30 plus inning, 30 plus pitches in the first inning. And how did you get to 94 pitches? What was your last inning like? How much have you labored? How do you feel? I mean, there's so much nuance to it that could be thrown aside based on just let's be overcautious and, and err on the side of caution in terms of protecting pitchers and not allow them to sort of, you know, push it to the limit a little bit because the limit might be an injury. I was just going to say before that, you know, the Giants with their unusual construction in the the rotation and the, and the pen, but the anchor is Logan Webb. And that's a guy who is, leading the major leagues in innings at 193. So he might hit the 200 plateau in his very next start. And that is something that he stated going into the season and early in the year, that that was his biggest goal for the season was to hit 200 innings and to try and lead the major leagues. And so far, so good for him, but he's somebody that he has been on the developmental track where he, he had the shortened season in 2020, but he went to 148 innings in, in 2021 then he bumped up to 192 and he, he missed a couple starts and he didn't, he fell just short of 200. And now here he is, he's going to plow past 200 innings. So I think you're still going to have guys like that, but you look at the Rays, they, they pioneered the opener strategy and they brought a lot of their younger pitchers along as the bulk guy after an opener as a softer landing when they were getting called up, but eventually they stretched out and became your more traditional starting pitcher. So I think it's just, it's a little bit of a maybe longer training wheels as you're getting somebody up through the minors to get their feet wet into the major leagues. And a lot of times, Tony, maybe you could speak to this. It seems like guys threw a lot more innings in the minor leagues before jumping into the majors uh, in, you know, in years past. So is that part of it too? Absolutely. That's part of it. Uh, there, there was never a mentality to worry about pitch counts all that much. And, um, I was in, you know, I'll give you an example. I was in uh, the bullpen in in uh, 1988 to start the season. And for the first month, I was a middle reliever. And the most I pitched was maybe two or three innings. Uh, I got thrown into the rotation in, in the, the next month. And my first start, I threw nine innings. So there was no, no effort to build back up innings, no effort to even think about pitch counts. In the minor leagues, it was the same way. Finish what you started was the mentality. Try to go nine innings. If you got taken out early, it was almost a, you know, a, it was a badge of honor not to get taken out early in the game. That was how you were measured in terms of your guts. Did you have the grit, you know, to, to, to be a starting pitcher? And, you know, it, I don't, you know, that, that was just kind of an old school mentality back then. So, yeah, is there, a, is there somewhere in the middle where we're, we actually use a little bit of modern technology to monitor you and then also 
allow you to develop and maybe put, you know, develop horses in the minor leagues. Yeah. There's gotta be a happy medium there somewhere. I'm not sure. I, you know, I know what it is because I haven't been in the minor leagues in a long time, but yeah, it's completely different. The whole mentality of it all. We've circled the, the wagon back to my first question there. I love this conversation. I love this topic. I feel like we could go on for for hours on this one topic alone, but let's move on here, guys. Uh, speaking of George Kirby, his Mariners after Lighting the world on fire in the month of August. They've lost four of five at the time we're recording this, seven of 10. And I'm wondering here, we talk about the AL West race being really intriguing. Have the Mariners peaked? I think they got really hot there for a while. And yeah, maybe they fell a little bit flat, but I, I'm still bullish on them overall because of guys like George Kirby and you know Cal Raleigh leading there. I'm a big fan of Cal Raleigh, uh, the way he runs that team. He's a real leader. And, and power, too. I think it gives you surplus value because of his the power in his bat. I think he's got a career high in home runs. He might end up hitting 30 or so. Uh, I'm not sure where he is now, but somewhere somewhere in that range where he's had a career high. So, yeah, I'm a, when I look at it, I, you know, obviously I'm biased. I look at the pitching staff, the starters, the closer, and then the catcher. That pitcher-catcher relationship is so important. Who's leading? Who, who's following? What is the dynamic there? I think Seattle has a good dynamic in that regard because of Cal Raleigh and because of the depth of their pitching staff. I'm still bullish on the Mariners. Uh, agreed. I'm a big believer in Seattle too. Um, look, they weren't going to keep running off eight-game winning streaks, but that is the the push that got them to the top of the race. They're right in the thick of it for the AOS still with Houston, even if you think the defending champs are going to eventually win the American League West. Don't worry, there's that wild card spot right there for them, and I like them better than Texas or Toronto. So even though they had a stretch where they lost 7 of 9 before shutting out the Angels, you have a big series with the Dodgers. You're probably just trying to tread water there, right? And then you can make up any games you lose against the A's, and then you have your final 10 push. Three at Texas, three versus Houston, four versus Texas. That will make or break their playoff push. And uh, you mentioned Cal Raleigh. I lo everybody loves Big Dumper, right? And he does have a career high in home runs. He uh, hit 27 last year. He just hit number 28. And uh, he's one of the hottest hitters uh, since the start of August. Him and Julio have been carrying the offense there, a team that struggled to score runs early on, but they've gained steam. And uh, he's handled the staff beautifully. Um, probably one of the tougher pitching staffs to handle and to catch. What do you think? Absolutely. A lot of different release points, styles, power. Uh, movement absolutely they, they are you know and they have diversity built into their staff if you go if you want to look under the hood with a lot of their release points they're kind of all over the clock a little bit which to me is is, is what the definition of deception is i mean i know a lot of a lot of uh, modern analytics uh, uh, people are are trying to define deception what is deception it's nothing you can quantify it's not something you can put a number to or it's hard to analyze but you know it when you see it uh the, the, the Tampa Bay Rays have had it in their bullpen for several years with different release points all over the map. If you look at a clock, the, you, know, you, you want guys all over the map because hitters have got to adjust and see different looks all the time. I think it's important. That's just anecdotal based on my own personal experience, but I think it matters, and, and Seattle's got that. Well, you can put a number to it. They get a lot of guys out. <laughs> there you go, yes. <laughs> yeah, I'm with you guys. Uh, definitely not writing off Seattle. I don't think they've peaked at all. Game and a half separates three teams in the AL West. The wild card 
will still be there for at least one team that isn't able to win the division. James, you outlined the schedule. Better to have this type of stretch now than, say, next week or a week and a half from now. So get this out of your system now, and you're ready to go for that final push against, again, the final 10, all games against the Rangers and the Astros. More Toe in the Slab is coming up. People, I need to tell you about a special offer from DraftKings because the NFL season is officially here. We've partnered with DraftKings Sportsbook, an official partner of the National Football League, to bring all new customers an exciting way to join in on the action right now. New customers, download the DraftKings app, use the promo code SLAB, S-L-A-B, fetches five bucks, and boom, $200 in bonus bets hit your account instantly. That's right, new customers who bet only $5 will get $200 in bonus bets instantly. Staying on the action, use your $200 in bonus bets on DraftKings parlays, combine multiple bets together for a shot at an even bigger payout. If sports betting is not yet available in your state, don't worry, you can still get another fun with DraftKings Daily Fantasy, where they offer cash prize contests for nearly every sport. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. New customers, use the promo code SLAB, again, S-L-A-B, betches five bucks on any wager and get $200 in bonus bets instantly. That's promo code SLAB only at DraftKings Sportsbook. Speaking of the final push here, guys, less than 20 games to go in the regular season. Is either Cy Young race over? I don't know if it's over. I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I, maybe we're a little biased here because, you know, we, you know, we're part of the Yankee family, but Garrett Cole, I think is, you know, the front runner by, by, by a, not a wide margin, but it's his to lose. Let's put it that way. There's always a little bit in terms of the voters, there's always going to be an, there's going to be a bias towards career numbers as well from some of the older writers as breaks along demographic lines. Some of the younger writers with votes are going to look straightly at under the hood performance this year, uh, but there's still so there's still the old guard that are going to look at look at it from a sentimental standpoint and say, you know what, look at this guy's career numbers. He's never won a Cy Young. This is his signature moment. This is his signature year. He deserves it. So that's why I say Garrett Cole. Maybe if if you want to make that argument, Jack. Maybe with him, it's his to lose a couple more starts, whatever he's got left. I think he can finish it off. The National League might be a little bit of a different story. You know, Justin Steele with the Cubs is gaining a lot of momentum in recent recent starts. I mean, his most, you know, he had that 12 strikeout start at at, uh, Wrigley Field the other day that was pretty, pretty good. And I'm trying to watch him pitch and see how he does it. This sort of 90, 91 mile an hour, lively little fastball that the hitters are swinging under. He's got the, he's the new guy with the invisible with a little cut to it too, a little boring action. So, you know, to me, he's kind of got the guy that that's, that's on the move, but Blake Snell's had a dominant season as well. So how much do you, how much do you emphasis do you put on the Cubs going to postseason? The Padres not. Uh, so yeah, I, I would watch for, for Justin Steele. Um, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe Wheeler a little bit in Philly. You know, as a horse, is kind of the Garrett Cole on the National League side. You know, a guy who's had a really good career and maybe uh, maybe deserves a little credit for that. The career achievement vote, you know, along with a great Cy Young season kind of a thing. Uh, you know, uh, that, that one's hard to put your finger on. But, yeah, the National League is probably a little more open than the American League at this point. Um, with Cole, I, I think the phrase I was just about to use was his to lose. So um, I don't think it's quite locked up yet because like if a guy goes out and gives up seven runs in a couple of games it can really throw some of the the leaderboards out of whack but uh as far as a 
almost like a lifetime achievement award sort of thing. This is a guy who's come close a lot and he's leading the, the league in ERA and innings. And that is pretty much a recipe to lock it up. So not clinched just yet, but there's only a few starts to go. And I think Cole should finish the job there. The national league is really topsy turvy. I want to see Spencer Strider uh, try and make a push here. I mean, he has 250 strikeouts in 162 innings, but he's had a few real blow up starts that boost the ERA all the way up to 383. So it knocks him off of those leaderboards. He deserves con- some consideration there too. But Blake Snell's having a great year. Logan Webb's having a great year. And we mentioned how he, he's leading the league in innings. Justin Steele leads in ERA. Uh, if you like looking at the war leaderboards, it's it's really kind of upside down because baseball reference, they look at runs allowed. And Fangraphs looks at fielding independent pitching, strikeouts, walks, home runs, things that are a little more in the pitcher's control. So if you look at Fangraphs, it's Wheeler, Gallon, Strider, Steele, Webb. But then you go to Fangra- uh, Baseball Reference and it's Snell, Webb, Gallon, Steele, Wheeler. So it's a, everything's a little mixed around. Zach Gallon serving notice. He had a couple of really uh, rough games. And then he comes out and pitches a shutout at Wrigley Field in a big wildcard race game. I want to see, it's almost like it's too hard to figure out. And I just want somebody to just go on a freaking tear in the last three, four starts of the season and snatch that Cy Young award away from anybody else. I think Steele might be the guy right there. I think Steele's prime for the big finish. That's the way it's kind of kind of trending right now. Come right back to this NL race. Uh yeah, I, I hate using the phrase again, it's Coles to lose here, but I, I kind of just feel like he needs to to tread water over the last three starts or so, and he'll be able to take home this this AL Cy Young Award, his, his first Cy Young Award. I'm wondering this, guys, just when we sift through all the numbers with this National League race, uh, Snell has been a, a strikeout machine significantly less innings he's not gonna you know he's not gonna hit 200 innings but he's well above 200 strikeouts here something that just keeps popping out at me I'm like can the Cy Young award winner really walk more batters than anyone in baseball because that's where Snell is right now that's a great point you know I was also going to say is there going to be the traditional bias against the the non-playoff team and and, you know are you going to give more credit are you going to penalize a guy for something that's out of his control you know, they will, you know, it's not Blake Snell's fault that that, that their team is going to not be in the playoffs. So, it's, you know, it's any any vote you can you can you can compare that to the MVP or any other thing in there. So, that is an interesting uh, example. You know, it depends on which war formula you use, right? I mean, James, really, I, I think that was an, a a really interesting point about the different formulas for war. We t- we tend to throw war out. Oh, he's got this much war. Well, there's a lot of different formulas for war. Baseball reference, B war, F war, fan graphs war. The mathematical equations are completely different. And so, yes, if, if you like fan graphs, Blake Snell's not going to do so well because of those walks. And, and look, this is not meant to be an award voting is not meant to be just a, a rank the war kind of thing. It's more about putting guys, into into the bin and say like all right here are the top guys and you take your pick out of this group and as far as the walks go it really makes you scratch your head I mean this is the Blake Snell we've seen for many years but as far as winning a Cy Young with that many walks it's I I don't I don't mean to say it this way but that's why I'm kind of hoping somebody else has a great finish to just grab that Cy Young because it would just be so weird 
for the walk leader to also win the side. You know, with the irony too, is as well with Blake Snell is that he lost his personal catcher. You know who that was? Gary Sanchez. The irony of all ironies for Yankee fans is that Blake Snell and Gary Sanchez were an unhittable tandem and how much credit Blake Snell gave to Gary Sanchez about his catching ability. All right, guys, let's let's end this segment on something fun, a fun topic before we get to some New York baseball talk. Um, Colorado football is 2-0. and <laughs> And uh, I never envisioned that I'd be starting off a topic with, with that sentence here. But it is football season, and I find myself checking to see what time Colorado plays each weekend now after just two weeks with Deion Sanders in his first season as the Buffaloes head coach. His son, Shador, is the quarterback. He's looking more and more like a first-round draft pick here. So Dion uh, jumps to the Pac-12. We obviously know how terrific of an athlete he was as a player, both in football and in baseball. And I just keep thinking about this. Deion Sanders, I don't, you know, we probably would have to ask him, like, hey, what have you failed at? I don't know if he would ever be that modest, to be honest with you, but it got me thinking here. We've seen the success of a celebrated and talented athlete in Deion Sanders have this much success as a coach. And we know his baseball background. How would Deion Sanders fare as a baseball manager, guys? <laughs> Don't bet against prime <laughs> at this point. I, I would personally, I would not bet against him. And his son's real. I mean, you can't take his eyes off your door when he's quarterbacking right now. So you're right. That is like, what time's the Colorado game all of a sudden? And, it is a remarkable story. He's lit up the whole industry without a doubt. And, you know, a lot of people talk about his baseball skills compared to his football skills. He was a good baseball player. And my my personal experience uh, can attest to that. And I can tell you a quick story about Dion. Uh, probably about five years ago, I we I was on a flight together with Dion. He was in first class. He was already in his seat. And I sat down next to him and he kind of looked at me up and down. And I said, hey, what's up, Dion? man? You used to own me. And then he kind of looked at me and said, ah, he kind of laughed me off and went, went back to sleep. And then about an hour later on the flight, he looked at me again and I said, hey, Dean, I'm David Cohn. And he goes, Cody, you're the one. You're the reason why I got to be on the Atlanta Braves World Series roster in 1992 because I I, I, I did own you. And, and I kind of laughed. I said, yeah, you kind of did. You know, and it really I think you know, James looked this up for me earlier, but he, he did. I mean, he for some reason, I just couldn't make pitches against him. He had good hands. He was a good fastball hitter. And he just really did kind of have my number. And I think he did get two or three, two or three hits in that World Series against me. And he's the reason if you go back and if you remember that time, you remember Dion taking helicopters from football to baseball games. And and was he going to be on the World Series roster for the 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 uh, Atlanta Braves in 1992 when I was on the Blue Jays roster? Um, yes, he was. And I was the reason. Bobby Cox put Deion Sanders on the World Series roster so that he could start against me. And in start, he did and hit me again. He did. And so, you know, I, I finally had that moment with Dion where he finally recognized me on the plane about an hour and a half into the flight. And then we had a nice little conversation and he is just, uh, you know, personality galore. You know, I would not bet against Dion and anything he wanted to do. I like that. Don't bet against prime uh, nine for 15 against you in his career there, Coney. So, and he did get three hits in that world series and Dion Sanders, obviously, uh, pro football hall of famer, one of the greatest cornerbacks of all time His baseball career is kind of underrated considering he was doing both for a lot of the time. And, 
He played nine big league seasons and 89 OPS plus. So just a little bit below average at the plate, but uh, speed defense. Uh, he had, you know, steals consistently double digit steals, 20 steals, 38 steals one year, 56 in 1997. He led the league in triples. You mentioned that 1992 season with the Braves. He led the major leagues with 14 triples in only 97 games, a terrific career. That's a little less heralded than his football career, but uh, a good ball player for prime. And as far as skipper prime goes, uh, why not? Yeah. If I was a, if I was a team owner or like an executive, I would, I would love to have the ability of like hiring him to manage my triple a team lead young men and kind of like set it and forget it, come back to it and see where they're at. But I would not bet against Deion Sanders uh, to, to, to lead fellow athletes. Uh, I think he does obviously a terrific job. You don't need to hear it from me to have him say that the results are there, but uh, that, that'd be really intriguing. Like I'm, I'm more than half serious about that. I think he would, yeah, I think he would do just fine. He'd figure it out, right. He'd find a way to become a good a baseball manager, but uh, yeah, Colorado. And uh, I think Colorado state this weekend, not a, not a big marquee matchup, but uh, hey, Oregon's on the docket. USC's coming up too. So uh, Colorado football already ranked uh, in this young season at this point. All right, guys, let's jump to some New York baseball topics here. The Mets, they hired David Stearns as their president of baseball operations. This was something that everyone saw kind of came uh, became a reality this past week. What is David Stearns' first order of business as the Mets president of baseball operations? Well, you know, he is 38 years old. And when you think about, you know, when he was 30 years old and he got the job with, with the Brewers, he was cutting edge kind of a general manager. He was way ahead of the game on pitching analytics at that point. Uh, he made some early trades that, that targeted young pitchers and started drafting young pitchers based on, spin rates and analytics and a cutting edge technology at the time. That's no longer the case. Everybody's got this technology now, but with all that being said, you know, he's going to, he's, he's going to try to uh, rebuild the system. And I think it just goes back to what Justin Verlander said when he was there, when he sort of was slightly critical, or at least reports are that he was slightly critical of the Mets analytics department, comparing it to Houston's that had such a big influence on him when he was traded from the Tigers to, to the Astros in terms of showing him modern analytics and pitching analysis that really changed his mind on a lot of different theories on pitching. So yes, he's getting, the Mets need that. They're going to have to to build the, rebuild their pitching labs, uh, rebuild their facilities. That's where, that's where having an owner like, like Steve Cohen is going to come into handy because he needs somebody to kind of rebuild the infrastructure, so to speak. And, and Stearns is the guy. So I think that's where he goes to is he he just starts with the infrastructure and rebuilds it and gets things in place so that you can make proper decisions and then you can develop talent in a much better, more advanced way. That's great for the long term. I would hope that they don't take a step back. I hope that they that they don't really recede here in the next year or two, because you still have a lot of talent on this team. This year from hell has uh, you know, surprised many, but don't forget that this team has a ton of talent. You have long-term Francisco Lindor, Brandon Nimmo, Edwin Diaz coming back, Kodai Senga, a good signing, Pete Alonso under contract for one more year, but he should probably be a guy that you is a face of your franchise that you want to build around. Uh, Francisco Alvarez slumped in the second half. 
But even with that, he's still an above average hitter for the season as a 21 year old catcher. And he's one of the best pitch framers in the league. So you have a lot there. You just want him to come in and take that, take the long road as far as the, rebuilding the analytics department and the, and the development system, but keep your eye on that. And this is a guy that he came in and he spun some great trades. He made some good signings. He traded for Christian Yelich. He signed Lorenzo Cain. Those propelled the Brewers to the NLCS and have, and they've been a, a playoff contender every year. They he's developed a great pitching staff there. Um, both long-term and short-term trading for Freddie Peralta when he was in rookie ball and then watching him turn into one of the uh, best young pitchers in the game, Brandon Woodruff, Corbin Burns. This is the kind of pipeline that you might be able to see in Queens someday. Here, here, man. Um, I'm with you long-term build that infrastructure, set that foundation that could potentially make the Mets, uh, you know, a consistent contender here short-term first order of business and i don't know how you do it and you know i feel like we're on the outside we don't we don't necessarily know one way or the other but you need to figure out whether or not you want pete alonso there long term um i don't know why there's all this talk uh, in the second half of the season about about pete alonso and his status with this team whether the, the not the mets want to pony up the money to pay him long term but that's something that you need to figure out once you get your foot in the door, in, in my opinion, if you're you're David Stearns here. Um, a lot of people were comparing this move. I heard more than one person say it, that this is akin to the Dodgers hiring Andrew Friedman away from the Rays all those years ago. And the whole Yankee-Mets comparisons, I, I never really take them that seriously. They're in separate leagues. They're doing their own thing. Um in terms of winning the town, winning the back pages, I think it's a tad antiquated. I could be wrong with that. I'm not sure. But I think if this ends up being what a lot of people expect it to be, where you can compare it to Andrew Friedman coming to the Dodgers, we've seen what they are. L.A. is running away with the NL West when they have one of the shakiest staffs they've ever had in terms of pitching right now. Like they are a consistent juggernaut in the National League. If that infrastructure is able to be built by David Stearns and the Mets have all of this consistency, I'm wondering here, if it goes as planned, how does it affect the Yankees? What do you guys think? Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Uh, hard to say. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, the, the only thing is, is that now the resources are even, whereas before in the previous ownership with the Mets, there was a lot of debt that saddled that organization and their decision-making was impacted by that. Not only that was across the board in every, every facet of the game. So yeah, I, they're on, they're on equal footing right now, maybe even tilted to the Mets because of the, uh, the, the, the wealth of the owner of the Mets. So uh, interesting to see. Um, I think the battle kind of goes, you know, like it's always been the battle for the back page that George Steinbrenner talked about for years. And even though there's nobody reads a, an actual back page of a newspaper anymore, or very seldom, some do still in New York, but that doesn't happen as much. It's more metaphoric in terms of, uh, you know what, we're battling for ratings now. How about SNY versus the Yes Network? 
you know, is that going to be very real where the yes network has kind of been in a league of their own uh, for, for several years since really since the beginning. So that's going to be an interesting follow too, uh, in terms of SNY, the SNY ownership too, still up for grabs. So the will pond still retain some ownership of that, the previous owner. So, you know, that, that that's another thing to, to look at, but yeah, no, did, how this plays out, stay tuned because the, the resources are on equal footing now. Competition's a good thing. It's fun you, you, you to have, two great teams in the same town would be great long-term for, you know, baseball in New York. And if that means, you know, know, down the line, some big free agent is, is in the running and he wants to come to New York and then it ends up becoming a bidding war between the Mets and the Yankees, that would be a blast. And it would excite the, the fan bases of both teams. And as far as the drive, you would see this, you know, in years past with the Yankees and Red Sox, you know, always looking over your shoulder. What are they doing? They're talking to that guy. Oh, we might trade for this guy. And I, it's a good thing. And you want to see that you have want to have that drive to try and not just beat your, you know, division rivals, but also to win the city as well. So you're saying the competition in the city could be hotter than ever. I like that. Absolutely. Yeah, right. I agree completely with what James said. Yes. Hotter than ever. Um, more important than ever, maybe even bidding on the same guys. Now, that said, we thought that was going to be the case this year too, and it didn't really work out for either team. <laughs> it may start this offseason with with uh, some pitching in Japan. We recently saw Brian Cashman over in Japan to see Yamamoto. Uh, you know, he's pretty good. He's probably going to be posted. He's 25 years old. Brian Cashman saw him throw a no-hitter. Uh, Billy Epler likes him too. <laughs> and I'm sure and I'm sure Stearns likes him too. So that that may it may start this offseason. In the, in the bidding for, you know, the, the next best starting pitcher it might be the best starting pitcher on the market is somebody from Japan. And you don't really get 25 year old free agent starters here. We certainly don't. Uh, a quick aside uh, for those watching on the YouTube stream, I, I kind of want to do a little mini poll comment. If you've ever actually uh, physically held the back page in your, in your hand here, uh, we, we love you for sure. Uh, I have, I still do sometimes. Your fingers, your yeah. Fingers. Yeah. yeah. Let us know. Let us know if you've actually held a back page uh, in your hand as you listen to this podcast. Oh, uh, one more item, gentlemen. More Yankee centric here. Carlos Rodon, he pitched well on Tuesday night over in Boston. Obviously, the year his first in pinstripes hasn't gone the way he envisioned or the team envisioned on and off with injuries, on and off the injured list. It's kind of been start and stop. How do we fairly evaluate Carlos Rodon's first season in New York? You know, I, I'm not sure that it can be done. The thing I the, the, the thing I look at is how open he is to growth. And is he open to sort of new ideas as, as his career and this contract unfolds over the next several years? And and to me, that just goes to the heart of kind of what I talked about on air last night during the broadcast is, is he going to have a better mix of pitches? You know, pitching in San Francisco in a big ballpark where the ball doesn't carry uh, is different than pitching in the American League East. And a better mix of pitches would serve him well. And I know this gets into pitching theory, and there's a lot of uh, different opinions on this. Uh, you know, we talked down here about sort of a redundant strategy, which he's employed to great effect. Hey, my four-seam fastball up in the zone is my best pitch. My slider's right there with it. Let me just throw those two pitches over and over again because uh, that's what the metrics say. And then, wait a minute, is there another theory in there for effect? Hey, mix in some change-ups. Mix in some speed differential. 
and that can help protect your four-seam fastball. And those high fastballs tend to leave the ballpark in the American League East, in particular Yankee Stadium, more than what you're used to, especially in San Francisco. So uh, are you open to this sort of a change? And will that serve him well moving forward, as I said, for the duration of this contract? I've seen that, yes. We saw that a little bit last night. You know, he had his best mix of pitches last night. And I, I just just from from watching after throwing, you know, maybe a a, a, a pitch, you know, a changeup that from the metric standpoint isn't rated very highly, but the fastball after that changeup, the hitter was laid on. And and from the eye test, it looked like that was the case with me. Uh, I don't know how you can prove that in terms of analytics. It's it's straight experience and looking and and watching, you know, boots on the ground type of experience. And that's what I see. Throw your curveball for strikes, and that changes the eye level. And then when you do throw that high fastball, they're late. And I saw a lot of late swings on his four-seam fastball last night, and I attribute, it, attribute that to a better mix of pitches. I think that bodes well for him moving forward. So, so yes, that's what I'm looking at. Is he open-minded? It looks like he is. Does he have the ability to throw more pitches? Yes, it looks like he does. And uh, to me, that that's the real key for Carlos Rodon moving forward. And that's just my own opinion. I'm not even sure if the, if the Yankees – uh, pitching department agrees with this or not. Uh, but, you know, what I see, uh, it, it looks good, you know, that that he's going to be able to be adaptable and, and to have a growth mentality moving forward. How do we fairly evaluate his first season here? Uh, poorly. It didn't, it didn't go well. But at the same time, even though it's a bit of a lost season, that doesn't mean we really need to pull the plug on him and, and write off the, the, the final five years of the contract because of all the things you pointed out, Coney. And, and I love how you were getting into it during the game. And, you know, we're not trying to turn him into Tom Glavin here and say, okay, but to go from in his first eight starts, he threw only 6% curveball change. So 94% fastball slider. He ticked that up to 16% on the other two pitches in, in that start in Houston, when he pitched really well and beat the Astros. Uh, then when he got shelled against Detroit and went back down to around 6%, he had his highest curveball changeup usage of the season it, at Fenway Park. It was around 19%. Now we're not again, that's that's still very heavy fastball slider usage, but just a little bit of, of mixing in. And, and Coney broke it down really well. Just just to, to mix in a little bit more can go a long way. I'm with you, James. There's no way to sugarcoat it. Carlos would admit it. First year went poorly. That being said, I don't think one particular player was gonna fix this Yankee season where they're at now, just a game over 500 at the time we're recording this. So even if Rodon was the Rodon for the last two years, would they have been better in the uh, win-loss department? Absolutely. Maybe they're in contention here for a wild card spot. Maybe. Uh, I don't know if he's drastically changing everything if we have the type of season that we probably expected from Carlos Rodon before spring training. Uh, that being That's my opinion. That being said, Coney, like, how much do you think it is the player? How much do you think it could be the organization with where we're at, with how pitching staffs are handled? Like, it, could there have been like a mandate to Carlos Rodon being like, hey, you do something really well here, and that's throw fastballs and sliders. You need to hit a certain percentage of those pitches in each start. Is, is something like that realistic? Am I overthinking? What is it? I think part of it is based on his own personal experience and, yeah. and what he's had success with, especially last year, his monster year in San Francisco. And, uh, you know, what he believes in his heart that he does well and what he wants to throw and whether or not he's open-minded or not. That's the key to me is uh, in any pitcher I've been around, any pitching coach I've been around over the years, um, 
there's a time to be stubborn. There's a time to trust your own instincts. And there's also a time to, to ask for help. There's a, there's a time to sort of uh, look at the bigger picture. And, you know, that that's the part I'm evaluating. We know it's a lost season for Carlos Rodon. We know the half of it was gone to injury. We know it's been spotty up and down. It's like, wait a minute, where's the swing and miss? That's the part that I was worried about. Uh, the swing and miss on his four-seam fastball was way down. And the whiff rate was way down. He was over 30% last year in San Francisco on just swing and misses on his four-seam fastball. That was 12% going into last year, less than half the rate. And a lot of foul balls off of that four-seam fastball. So, hey, wait a minute. What you did last year in San Francisco is not necessarily going to work this year. And teams are adjusting year to year at, at, at getting to that high fastball. So, yeah, you have to get ahead of the curve here. And the way that he gets ahead of the curve is to protect what he thinks is his bad pitch. That's the term I use a lot. Protect that four-seam fastball. And how you do that is throw more first-pitch curveballs to get ahead. Take some pressure off it. Throw some change-ups in there just for effect. So that then when your four-seamer comes off of that, those off-speed pitches, uh, the front-to-back strategy, the speed differential is very effective to the hitters. You know, it makes them just flinch a little bit. It makes them a little bit late. So, uh, you know, that that's the part for me, I think, that that he's shown that he's adaptable, that he's, that he's willing to listen, he's willing to change. I don't know if it was Austin Wells or not leading the charge last night to a better mix of pitches, if it's Matt Blake or whatever, but I, I liked it. I liked what I saw last night. And I think that bodes well for the future. And, you know, it's uh, you got to, you got to adjust constantly in this game. You got to try to get ahead of the curve, not behind it. I'll show a little love to uh, Austin Wells there. Wells caught him in the Houston start and he caught him uh, at Fenway. Different mix of pitches. We did see him shake off a few times, but not a lot. He worked fast for the most part. He kind of let Austin Wells, you know, lead the, lead the dance a little bit. And when he really felt convicted, he's, he's always got the veto power to to shake off and throw the pitch he wants. And Rodon was one of the first pitchers to throw to Austin Wells this year in a rehab start. Austin Wells was sidelined in, in spring training. So Rodon, I remember at the time of that rehab outing, he he applauded Austin Wells for his leadership behind the plate. So, yeah, something that I'm looking forward to uh, over the last two and a half weeks, how Carlos Rodon finishes. If we see more of the same here, mixing in an occasional changeup curveball, showing the Yankees that he can be the pitcher that uh, they're depending on for, for 2024 here. Good episode, guys. I think we covered a lot here. Uh, Sunday Night Baseball, final two weeks, David. Where are you going to be at this weekend? Arizona. Going to go, go, go yeah, Arizona still in the race. And then the last, you know, we've got two more Sunday nights. Um, it's going to be, uh, you know, Dodgers Giants in the last one, obviously, back, back out in L.A. But, uh, uh, you know, it, it, it's been uh, West Coast bias, right? San Francisco uh, uh, last weekend, Arizona this weekend, and then uh, Dodgers State in the last weekend. Now that's a that's a big series. You, you said Arizona. It's Cubs Diamondbacks. That's a big, Huge. big game in the <laughs> NL wildcard race. And the Cubs are still hanging around the NL Central behind Milwaukee. Got a good one. All right, we'll be watching Sunday Night Baseball last two weeks, Arizona, and then the Dodgers and the Giants. It's going to do it for this episode, guys. Again, please subscribe to our YouTube channel so you don't miss a beat of what we're streaming each and every week on YouTube. For David Cohn, for James Smythe, our terrific producer, Dan Rourke, this is Justin Shackle. We'll talk to you next week on Telling the Slab, Pitching with David Cohn, a production of John Boy Media. Take care.